Shame-based cultures. Imagine that you're driving along and suddenly you hear a siren behind you and a policeman, woo, 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 and he pulls you over. Maybe a policeman sounds different in your country. What is the first thing you feel when the policeman pulls you over? I'm from a guilt-based culture. I feel guilt. Oh, oh, I wonder, if, what did I do wrong? Did I, was it going too fast? Did I go through a red light? I know some people think, oh, I hope nobody sees me because they immediately feel the shame that's there and so forth. So our worldviews puts us in different uh, situations. Imagine, um, at least in my situation growing up, I was in school, we had an intercom. That's a microphone that where the principal could make announcements through the whole school. Now imagine sitting in class about grade seven and there's an announcement, you know, could Roland report to the principal's office? Now what do all the kids do? Ooh, what did you do wrong? At least in my society, they would always assign guilt. I used this illustration in another country, in another culture. And I explained in my country, they would always say, what did you do wrong? And they looked blankly at me. And they said, no, kids would never say that. They would assume you were getting a reward. I said, really? Why? Well, they said, if you were being disciplined then the principal would come and quietly speak to you and draw you away and talk to you. He wouldn't shame you in front of the entire school body. The only reason you would be, your name would be called in front of the entire school body if you were being honored. Oh, you see, worldview changes the way we think. And we think, oh, this is the way I should react when actually in another worldview, people react and may be thinking something totally different than what you're thinking. And this is the challenge of communicating the gospel. We go and we, we think we understand people, but we are misunderstanding and we're misreading the cues and we're saying things and they are hearing something different than what we're saying. Let me give you another example. When I was in Yemen years ago, um, the Canadian, I mean, being it was a Canadian, and there were only a few of us Canadians in the country, the ambassador came down from Saudi Arabia and I had opportunity to meet him. And uh, he was meeting the different Canadians who were in the country. And he asked me, would I be the warden for the country of Yemen? He said, what that means is I would keep a list of all the Canadians in my house and their phone numbers. And if the embassy had uh, like an evacuation order or some kind of thing, they would call me and I would call all the people on the list. I said, sure, I'll do that. I wasn't paid anything. It was just I guess I serve my country. I'll be a, a warden for the embassy. So I was the warden for the American embassy, uh, for the Canadian embassy uh, there in Yemen. And one day, the Canadian government decided to send a delegation of government people to Yemen. And uh, they sent the minister of, of mining and the minister of energy and uh, different ones of the government ministers who were in charge of those areas of the country. And they were coming down to meet their Yemeni counterparts for discussions. What could be done for better relationships and how can Canada help? And maybe they could buy our products, maybe we could buy their products. And so this group came. And they, uh, they, they, had, uh, they stayed in the, the best hotel in the city. And they had a big meal. And they invited all the Yemeni counterparts to come to this meal. And I was invited to go because I was representing the Canadian embassy. Well, I didn't know anything about politics, but I went. And I discovered when I got to this meal, there was a great long table in this room. And on one side, all the Canadian delegation sat. And on the other side, all of the Yemeni delegation sat. The minister of mining across from the minister of mining and the minister of uh, health across from the minister of health and so forth. And so I got to sit down at this table and I sat on the Yemeni side because I wasn't part of the Canadian delegation. And uh, when we got to the table, there was this, uh, the, the, the table was set in a very proper manner. It had big plates and little plates and big forks and little forks and smaller forks and even smaller forks than that. There were big cups and little cups and big spoons and little spoons and knives and, you know, this, 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 this whole thing. And, and we looked at this. And I looked at it and I thought, oh my goodness. I remember taking an etiquette class way long time ago and I couldn't remember a single thing that I learned in that class. And... The Yemenis are all muttering to themselves because what, what were they going to do? These are men who 
usually dipped their bread and their food and ate it with their fingers, and now they've got this big fancy display in front of them. And uh, some of them said, what, what do we do? And I said, I, I, all I remember is the big plate is for the big food and the big fork is for the big food. So if they serve big food, we put it there. But if it's just little things they give us, we use the littler things. I couldn't remember what, you know, one's salad and one's dessert and who knows what. Okay, so we were all worried. And as I sat down, you know, these men were all very worried. What do you think worried them? I was worried about how do I do this Right. But I discovered, listening to them, they were worried about something else. They were worried about, how do I do this honorably? Because they were afraid of bringing shame because they did it wrong. Now, who do you think they were afraid of shaming? They were afraid of shaming and bringing shame on their country if they didn't eat right. Because their country's shame and honor was at stake as they sat at that meal and how they acted. And so we ate the meal, and at the end we were finished, and we got up, and afterwards the Yemenis went around, and these men congratulated one another after the meal. And they said a proverb, an Arab proverb, and they said, congratulations, we came away with our honor intact. And that's a very famous Arab proverb, because you're in a situation and we got out of it. However we got out of it, our honor is still intact. It had nothing to do with right and wrong, but we got out of it and we didn't shame or dishonor ourselves or the people that we represent. Honor and shame is a very, very important. These are shame-based cultures. And I discovered as I went to the Middle East, and as I have since gone around to different countries, that in shame-based cultures, there are many subtle things that point to um, honor and shame and ways of honoring people. And I discovered that some of these cultures are very rich with meaning of things. And coming from North America, I'm not used to that. We don't have any meaning much. People say, come in, and I come in. It doesn't matter which chair I sit on. It doesn't matter, you know, if I have Coke or Pepsi or if they serve coffee first or how much coffee I drink or anything. But in all these other cultures, I was discovering these things all had meaning. For instance, when you uh, go out to visit in a Bedouin tent, he will come along and he will give you a cup of coffee. Now, their coffee cup is only about that big. It's just a very small cup and he has a big coffee pot and he'll pour in a third of a cup. So you're only getting a spoonful of coffee and he serves this to you. And you take it and you drink it and you give it back to him. And the proper thing is to shake your cup to show that you don't want any more. So you shake your cup, you give it back. He goes around, he gives everybody coffee until everybody's happy with the coffee that they've had. And then the visit goes on. About halfway through the evening, he will get up and he will grab this and he will go around again and he will give coffee to everyone. And then the visit will continue. And later in the evening, he'll get up and he'll do it a third time. Now, I didn't realize at the beginning, but I had to learn that each of these cups have names and they have meanings. When you arrive and you're given the first cup, it is the cup called Salam, the cup of peace. So may there be peace between us. And so you're all drinking to peace. Halfway through the visit, it's called Sadiq, friendship. And so we're all drinking to friendship. When the third cup comes around, it's time to leave. And you got to go. But that cup has a name as well, and it's called a safe, the sword. Wow. What does that mean? I can understand peace. I can understand friendship. But what about the sword? What kind of cup is the sword? Well, the sword means that I will defend you with my life. That's how close a friend we are. Let me tell you a story took place many years ago in Yemen. There was a man who killed another man. He was in argument, and he killed someone from another tribe. He was guilty of murder. He was afraid for his life because the other tribe found out about it, and so he fled for his life. And he fled up on foot, up through Saudi Arabia, made his way all the way up into the northern uh, part of Saudi Arabia and came up into Jordan. And there he met some Bedouin tribesmen, and he stayed with them. And he was with them for three nights, Three nights have the same name, uh, 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 the peace and friendship and the sword. On the third day, 
his pursuers caught up with him. And they said, give us this man. He killed someone in our tribe, and it's life for a life. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, he's a murderer. And the Bedouin sheikh said, I cannot give him to you because he stayed with us three days. And now we will protect him with our lives. And so a battle took place between the Bedouin and the Yemeni tribesmen over a man who was guilty. The Bedouin fought and died and some of them lost their lives to defend their honor because this man stayed with them for three days. That's how important honor is in their culture. It's far, far more important than right and wrong because honor is everything. So everything has meaning. When you come into a room, there are seats of honor and you can have an argument when you come in because the Bible talks about the seats of honor and uh, it says don't take the seat of honor. It's better to sit down lower and then be called up than to be up front and be asked to move. That would be embarrassing. So I remember as a young man, I would come into a room and be full of men and they'd all stand up and we'd shake hands and then they would say, come sit here and they would point me to a, a chair. Maybe it's, uh, and I could recognize it's the chair uh, of honor because it's got uh, maybe the grandfather's picture or something special about it and, and I would say, oh, you know, and then maybe the old man is sitting there and he'd say, come, come sit here. And I'd have to say, no, 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 you sit there. I'll sit over here by the door. And then they say, no, 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 you sit over here. And then we have this argument. And a real argument breaks out over where I'm going to sit down. I'm insisting I'm going to sit by the door. They're insisting I sit up here. And finally, somebody will grab me and throw me in a chair. And we'll sit down. And we've all had great fun. But for an outsider, they would think we were having a huge argument. And we are. And the argument is over me saying, you are all honorable people, let me sit over here. And they're going, no, no, you're an honorable guest. You can't allow our guest to sit by the door. You must sit up higher. And they have to decide who sits where. Who am I higher? Who or then I, am I lower then? It was interesting in Yemen, when I would go into the post office there would, or into a government office to do business, there would be a lineup, you know, a queue. People lined up to, to go up to the window. And so I would come and join the back of the line. Usually there were Egyptian uh, transit workers, people you know, from Egypt who were there at the back, and they would get all nervous. You, know, you don't belong at the back of the line. They said, move up, move up, go up closer. And then if you look, you realize that this is not a line that you join the back of and work your way up. You join your line because it's the most honorable to the least honorable standing in line. And so you have to decide where you fit and go up and, and join the line. And if you're an important person, you come all the way up to the front or maybe you go right around and go behind the counter and sit down beside the guy because you're an officer with, you know, something on your shoulders or somebody important. And so it would be fun. To, I would go stand in the back of the line. And they say, no, no, no. And I say, no, you're first. And they go, no, no, no. You're a Westerner. No, no, no. You're a foreigner too. I'm a foreigner. You go first. No. And we start all this arguing going. And we would have great fun. And I would earn respect from it because I was not insisting that I was greater than they were. And we could have all of the, but it communicated to people, who was I? Where was I? What was going on? Because all of these things have meaning. And people watch our lives and they look to see what has meaning and what doesn't. And, I mean, what are we saying with our lives and how we act and don't act? So everything has meaning. And uh, this is the difference between our cultures. In, in a shame-based culture... It is shame that controls society, shame and honor. And so young people don't step out of line because they would bring shame on their family. Whereas in a guilt-based culture, we do what is right or what is wrong. And so I'm a good person, so I do what is right. And so these are different things that govern society. And so um, you can compare society and realize that Arab society works as long as honor and shame are in control. And Western society works as long as right and wrong are in control. But when that loses and starts to mix or whatever, then you start to get some chaos that steps in. Now, how do you learn about shame-based cultures? The best way is to actually live in one and ask people questions. And ask them, how do I tell an honorable person from a shameful person? How do I tell a good, well, we would say a good person from a bad person? How do I, you know, tell... Uh, if somebody is an honorable person, that I should, uh, should deal with them and so forth. Um, 
and learn. Ask people questions. We would ask questions about, well, what happens if an honorable person does something shameful? And then we would say, like, like, what is shameful in your culture? What could I do that would be shameful, that people would be really embarrassed about or would bring shame on their family? What happened if a local person did something? And we would learn what, uh, what people thought and what their opinions were. And it's a good topic of discussion. So discovering honor and shame is important. And we discovered there's variations. Many, many different cultures are different within a shame-based culture. They're not all the same. There are some shame-based cultures. If someone is shamed badly, maybe they create, they do something bad. Maybe a young person fails in his high school and he just totally fails and messes up. In some cultures, they will commit suicide to preserve the honor of the family. They take the shame on themselves and that is typical of some Asian cultures. In some cultures, they will just leave, leave home, not go back because they just leave their tribe because they, they've, they've, they've been such an embarrassment. There's a story of, I remember hearing a story of, a, of an Iraqi man who had done something in his tribe. And uh, this is just a story that was going around. And, and so he, he left his tribe. He left his family. He went off to America. He was gone 25 years. And after 25 years, he thought, you know, I'd like to see my mother and father again. It'd be really nice to see my uncles and my aunts. Maybe... Maybe it's all forgotten and I can go back and, you know, see my family because what I did was just, you know, time has passed and it'll be forgotten. So he went back, traveled back uh, to his country and uh, he came up near the village that was there and there were some kids playing outside of the village and he came up to them and he said, I have a question for you. And they said, yes. He said, do you ever remember a man and he gave his own name? He used to live here. Oh, yes, they said. And they told him the whole story of what he had done. And so he turned around and he left. He never saw his mother or his father again because that shame was still there and he was, did not want to go. So you might leave. You might be, your family might leave. Your parents might say, I, I disown you and that you might be cast out. In some cultures, if the person badly shames uh, the people around him, his family or his tribe, they may take revenge on him and kill or revenge in some way the person who brought shame on them. So some people take shame on themselves, some people run away because of shame or leave, and some are revenged on by those who feel the shame. And so different cultures react differently. Now, shame and honor are generally attached to families. Imagine growing up being told that your family is the best family, that your family is an honorable family, your family is a good family, your family, everyone is, 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 gets good jobs and we're moving ahead and we're good people. And everywhere you go through life, you represent your family. And so when you go to college, you represent your family. And you always think, this will get back. People will remember my family by this. And so all through life, this was, is part of, your family is a big part of everything you do. When you finish high school and you get those final marks, Imagine coming home and you have to show your parents your report card. Well, in our community, these, they, re, they post their report cards publicly up on the walls so everybody can read everybody's marks. Okay, so there they are. They're out in public. And uh, when uh, the young guy gets home at the end of that day, his family will be there. Not just his mother and father, uncles, aunts, cousins. All the important uncles will be there. And there will be a very, very important discussion will take place. And it will be that young person's future. And they will look at the marks and say, oh, you have pretty good marks. We think you should study some more, go to school. So they'll begin to discuss as a family. Well, we, we have a doctor, we have a, we have a lawyer, uh, but, but we don't have a dentist. Our, our tribe doesn't have a dentist. You know, all the uncles, aunts, everybody. So, so you should study dentistry. Now, some families might really insist on it. Some will just put it out there and be like, I don't want to study dentistry. But maybe they'll you know, work at it, but they'll give you some options. Depends on the family. But maybe in the end, you'll decide, okay, I'll study dentistry. All your uncles will get together, put money in the pot, and send you off to school. And you are studying to be the family dentist. And when you graduate, they will buy you your dental equipment, open the clinic up, and there you will, what? Serve the family and serve the tribe. And that's what you're there for. And you may pick up a little other business, but you are there for your family. And so they're very family-oriented. 
And as families, they think about uh, who do we have as a family who works in the post office? Who do we have as a family who's in the police department? Who do we have as a family who's in the telephone company? Who do we have as a family who's a civil servant in the government? And this, these are people, and where I was at, they, called, they were called wasta. They're your representatives. And so who do you have as your representative? I remember one lady I was talking to, she wanted a telephone in her house. And she wanted to apply, but she was terrified because her family had no wasta. They had no representative in the phone company. And so as far as she knew, it would be impossible for her to get a telephone because she couldn't go through a family member to get it. Because just her mindset of this. So there, your honor and your shame and your whole life is attached to family or to your nation or to the group that you're with. And this is very, very important. And in many ways, honor and shame is attached to religion, to Islam, or maybe to the Orthodox Church, if you're Greek Orthodox. We're not just talking about Islamic worldview. We're talking about shame-based cultures. And uh, if somebody shames... Your religion, you personally are offended. A short while, well, some time ago now, there were some cartoons drawn of Muhammad and put into a Danish newspaper. Muslims all over the world reacted because they felt the shame. When their religion was attacked, they felt the shame was put upon them. They took it personally and they responded violently to it because of the, their religion was being shamed. Well, in some shame-based cultures, they may be attached to the group of young people or the group of people who meets together. It may not actually be a, um, a religious group or a family group, but it may just be another group of people. And in fact, we even have in North America more and more shame-based cultures affecting us. Think of young people nowadays. And they, they no longer think in terms of right and wrong. They're being infected. As we talked about mixing the paints, you know, to get the different colors, more and more of shame-based culture is being mixed in so that the gang, the group of people you hang out with, the honor of your group is very, very important. Now, cultures are not static. I mean, they're not fixed. Cultures change. And like we said Cultures are, are moving. One of the things I do in my studies, we often have Canadians and Americans, and to most people on the outside, we look at these cultures and we go, they're very similar. Yet when you get down to it, we have very different worldviews, and we're different countries with different worldviews. And, and most of us, it's hard to put our finger on what are the differences until we start talking about honor and shame and guilt and fear. And then uh, we begin to realize that we, our Canadian culture is moving differently than American culture is doing, moving. So a Amer typical American worldview has been a guilt-based worldview. There's a little bit of that shame and honor mixed into there, but what has been growing in America is the fear-power worldview over the last years. And you see that in 9-11, when there was a threat, and when there's fear, people react with, with power. Up in Canada, we actually laugh at Americans who keep guns around them, who have baseball bats behind their doors, who do stuff, because we don't do any of that. We don't, most of us don't even, I don't even lock the doors to my house at night. Um, just not even a thought of that. Yet, um, I remember one of our students, uh, she was in the class, and people were saying, oh, really? It can't be like that. And she said, oh, yeah. She said, because she was from America. She said, I brought my gun with me to school. And we were all like, What? You know, this is a Christian school and you brought your gun. She says, I'm packing my gun. You know, she's, because I have a right to carry it. You could just hear the, 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 the worldview coming through. She has a right and she has a fear. And so we saw, saw that mixture that's happening. And as I look around North America, I see that growing fear and the reaction to it is power. Now up in North America, up in Canada, we have a different mix that's happening. We have a little bit of that, but not much. We have a huge Asian influx into Canada. Most of our people coming into Canada are from India or from China or, or Japan or other parts of Asia. And we have absorbed an awful lot of this honor, shame thinking in North America, uh, in, in Canada. And uh, our culture is quite different from an American culture. We don't have quite the mix of fear and power, but we have much more the uh, honor and shame. 
Okay, is honor and shame found in the Bible? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. As we go through the Bible, what does the Bible say about honor and shame? And can I find verses that speak to a shame-based culture? Let me tell you a story. I was uh, just a new person, a young guy in the Middle East, uh, studying language, and I was helping the language school, and one of my jobs was every night to go down to the post office and to pick up mail for the school. And many of the students got their mail through the school mailbox. And so every night I'd go down, and it was a big post office with miles and miles of, of boxes and different rooms of post boxes. And out, out front of this uh, post office was a guard. There always was a soldier there. He was sort of make sure nobody went in and messed up the place or used it as a toilet or something. I mean, just there to keep the place in order. And I would see him every night and say hello, different, different guards there. Well, one night I went down, and there was not a soldier there. There was a man actually dressed in a suit, a little strange, and I said hello to him. He said hello, and, and I went in to get my mail, and he watched me. He was sitting sort of back inside a little bit, and he sort of tipped back his chair, and he watched me the whole time I got my mail, and I got out, and as I was going out, he was watching me very carefully, and he said hello, and I said hello, but I just kept on going. I just didn't think anything of it, and afterwards, I had that feeling like, I think he wanted to talk to me, but, you know, I just, I, I didn't catch it. Didn't think anything of it till the next night. I came down and there was a man again. I said hello. And he said hello and he stood up. And I went to get my mail and he followed me. And so he stood a little ways away and I got my mail out of the mailbox and I closed it and I turned around and he said, excuse me, are you getting the mail out of box 1932? I said, uh, yes. He said, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. So we sat down. There were two chairs there. And he said, listen, I, I, I'm not a soldier. I, I, I asked to be here because I wanted to meet the person who gets their mail in box 1932. I said, oh, okay, really? Um, and he said, yeah, he said, uh, my job is I work in the post office. And my job is I watch all the letters that go in and out of the country. And I've been reading the mail that comes into your mailbox. And I have a question. He said, uh, I, I, and I said, oh, okay, uh, maybe I can answer it. I don't know. And he said, um, all of the letters, many of the letters that come to this mailbox, they have quotations. People quote somebody. Now, all the other mail, you don't get quotations. like, But everybody has these quotes. I want to know who these people are that, you know, that they quote. I said, I, I don't know. And he said, like, like who's Isaiah? Oh, <laughs> I said, Isaiah, and he said, yeah, and John, and then there's, there's, you know, and there's, you know, and he started listing different people, and I said, well, especially he mentioned Isaiah first, and he mentioned some of the other Old Testament ones, Daniel, and I said, oh, I said, they're the prophets. He said, the prophets? I said, yeah, they're quoting writings from the prophets. He said, the writings of the prophets were lost. I said, no, 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 they're not lost. We have the writings of the prophets. Maybe you Muslims didn't know about it, but we've got the writings of the prophets. He said, are they trustworthy? I said, oh, yes, we have manuscripts. I said, you remember the, the cave up at Qumran across the river there? They found all those manuscripts. They had writings of the prophets in there, and they're just like the writings of the prophets we have now. This was way back before the time of Muhammad, way back before the time of Esau. We've got accurate copies of the writings of the prophets. He said, really? I said, yeah, would you like to read them? Oh, he said, I love to read the writings of the prophets. So I said, fine, what we will do is we will um, give you... I'll give you a book. It has the writings of the prophets, and it's got um, uh, the, the gospel attached to it. And you can, you can read through the writings of the prophets. He, he was very excited. So he got his Bible. Next day, I brought him a Bible, and uh, he had his Bible. Now, after that, he would come to me maybe every week, every two weeks. He'd drop by our house, and he would ask questions that he had been reading through. And it's just reading, and there's no pressure. He was just reading, and he'd come and say, I have a question. So one night, he came over, and he said, I've got a question for you. He actually he was in our living room and he closed the curtains and he, uh, he got real close to me and he said, the walls have ears in this country. And I thought, he should know, and uh, of course, because who he works for. And he said, I have, I have a question. And I said, okay. And I was thinking we're going to probably go to Abraham or Ishmael or something like that. And he said, my question is from 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm going, 1 Samuel? What's in 1 Samuel? Well, if you remember, 1 Samuel... You have Hannah. Hannah wants a baby, and she doesn't have a baby. The other wife has a baby, and she's bemoaning the fact that she's in a position of shame because she has no child. 
And she wants a child, not only just for her own sake, but to bring honor to her husband and to be pleasing to her husband. And, and so she's desiring to have this male child. And finally, God gives her this male child. And in chapter 2, you have the song that she sings. And she is singing this praise song. And in the middle of the song, she says, God lifts the beggar from the dunghill and sets him among the princes. And Muhammad said to me, beggars are beggars and princes are princes. Beggars never become princes. He took the Bible and he threw it across the room. And he said, that's garbage. And I thought for a minute and I said, no, that's the gospel. And he said, no, that's garbage. And I said, that's the gospel. And then we had a little, little argument and I began to realize that is the gospel. The gospel is that God lifts us from a position of shame and moves us to a position of honor. In fact, the gospel is that God moves us from a place of guilt and he takes us to a place of innocence. But the gospel is also that God moves us from a place of fear and he moves us into a place of power. All of those are expressions of the gospel message. And it's a sad thing when evangelicals reduce down the, the Christian message to only God moves us from a place of guilt to a place of innocence. And we leave it at that. And we don't express it in a true form. Because remember we talked about sin and the three effects of sin? Well, if this is sin, if God removes the sin, then he removes the guilt, the shame, and the fear that are attached to it. And if we are only preaching about guilt and innocence, we are only preaching one-third of the gospel message. Now, is the topic of guilt and honor and shame and so forth, are they found in the Bible? Well, I went to my Bible and I said, well, is honor in the Bible. And so I got my concordance and I started to count up the words. And there were 190 times in my Bible that the word honor appeared in the Bible. We're to honor God, honor our parents, honor elders, honor Christian teachers, honor government. I mean, it's all the way through our Bible. We are to honor people. Well, what about shame? Is shame found in the Bible? Over 100 times the word shame appears. Okay, let's check all of these out. Is guilt in my Bible? Well, guilt is in my Bible the word 40 times. And only seven times is guilt mentioned in the New Testament. Very interesting. They're all there, but somehow as I read through my Bible, I've picked out this line of guilt and innocence, and it's there, and it's important. It speaks to my worldview. But there's a lot in the Bible that speaks to honor and shame that somehow I miss because it doesn't speak to my culture. It's speaking to someone else's culture. And the danger is when I go to, into another culture, I take my guilt, innocence view of the scriptures and I try to present that to them and they don't understand what I'm talking about. Just as I might not understand what some of the verses in the Bible talk about when it talks to me about honor and shame. Now one of the problems when we go and talk to people and share the gospel, God wants to move us from a place of shame to a place of honor as they will say, you cannot change your status. And I came across a story. I was learning Arabic. I was struggling with reading and writing. And so we got a hold of, I think, a grade three reader. You know, this is really simple stuff. But I'm reading, and this is a story. Now, grade three story, probably a story that every child in the country knows. And this was a story. It was very interesting. It was a story told, actually, I found out later, by an Iranian uh, storyteller and, and so forth. He tells the story of a king and a queen who in Persia, and they have no child. And they badly want a child. And so um, they, uh, they, one day they're in the marketplace and they see this abandoned child. And the queen loves uh, this little baby and they take the baby home and raise it. Well, eventually they have children of their own and so forth. Now, as this child grows up, they don't know the background of the child. The child has come, his father was a thief, the mother was a prostitute, but they raise the child in their home and eventually, when he gets older, this boy robs them of everything, takes it and flees from the palace. And the story ends with, the son of a thief is a thief, and the daughter of a prostitute is a prostitute. That kind of, that's the way the official story, the grade three story softened it a bit, but the, the son of a, of a thief is a thief. 
And they, they understand from when they're very small that you do not change. If you are in a place of dishonor, if your family's in a place of dishonor, you'll never move into a place of honor. But the Bible says you do. And this is the gospel message, but we're up against a culture that says no. If you go to India and you are a Dalit, you are a, um, uh, you know, the lowest caste, you are stuck in that caste. Now there have been people who have got, got their education and they have become doctors, but as soon as they are somewhere and they open their name, somebody says, who are you? And they give their name, it's a Dalit name, everybody knows, you're a low caste. So they change their name and everything's fine until somebody asks, what village did you come from? And, you know, and so forth. Or maybe here's their, their dialect. Or maybe they're talking with their mother on the phone and here's the language they're talking. And they say, oh, you're, do- you're low caste. Because you cannot change. You can try to get your way out, but you can't change your caste. And that's in their mindset. And it's there. And so when we go with the gospel message, we have a struggle. Because my Bible teaches us that the gospel is all about change. But they believe you can't change. Now there's truth in both of those because without God, you cannot change. But with God's help, you can change. One day I was talking to my landlord and we got into this subject and he, got, he, he just got saying, look, you cannot change. You know, a thief is a thief and the son of a thief is a thief. Don't worry, it will not change. And I'm saying, Lord, what do, what do I say? You know, I, I just stopped, you know, while, we, while he was talking, I'm, I'm praying and I'm saying, Lord, what, what do I say? And suddenly, a word, one word flashed into my mind. And I turned to him, and because I, I, I do this, I say, okay, Lord, I'm going to open my mouth, and I'm going to talk, and you just fill the fill. So I opened my mouth, and I said, sir, what do you think of Australians? He said, Australians? And I said, yeah, what do you think? of?" Oh, he said, Australians. Australia is a wonderful country. He said, my, my brother moved to Australia, and he's there. And he said, Australians, they're lovely people. I said, I'd love to go to Australia. And so we had this discussion about Australia and how nice it was and how wonderful it was and all the wonderful things. And then I said, sir, what do you know about Australian history? He said, nothing. I said, well, at one time, Australia was a prison, the whole continent. And Europe, especially England, they would send their thieves and the prostitutes down down to Australia because they would just let them be. They couldn't get off the island. And it was populated by thieves and by by prostitutes. He was shocked when I said that. I said, but, I said, you've got to understand the history. Go back and look at the history of the church and the work that was done and the outreach that was done in Australia and how Australians are wonderful people. But as you get to know them, you may find that some of them have a history where they've come from thieves and prostitutes. But it's changed and they're different today. He was angry with me. He was not happy. He's, and so that was the end of it. Well, I saw him the next day. And the next day he came over to me and he said, I went and checked out what you said yesterday. And I, you're right. He said, I'm just shocked. He said, I don't understand it. And I said, well, go and look, because that's the power of the gospel message to change people's lives. God is in the business of changing people and changing them so they move from one until the other. So you cannot change your status is what they believe. But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible tell us? Well, think about this question. Why did God allow the people of Israel to go into slavery? Isn't that a strange question? Why did he allow his people to go into slavery? Well, there's two answers to that. If you remember back in Um, Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed and so forth. Well, who was the first one to curse Abraham and curse his offspring? That's a loaded question because it was Sarah. Sarah said to Ishmael, the son of Abraham, I don't want him, throw him out of my presence. She was the first one to stand up and throw, throw him out and it was her children who went into uh, slavery first, if you look back, as God's word comes true. And as she stood up against Abraham and didn't want 
his children, her children suffered in the end. That's, that may be the reason why they went in. But the Bible gives us another reason, and that's in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 26. Now, if you want verses to sh- use to share the gospel, these are the kinds of verses you'll pull out of, out of the Bible. And God basically says in Leviticus 26, 13, that he allowed the children of Israel to go into slavery to demonstrate to all the nations that he was a God who raises people from slavery and makes them people who walk with their heads held high. It was a demonstration to all of the nations at that time that this is the kind of God that he was. He takes people from slavery and he makes them their own great nation to be rulers and to bless the entire world. That's the picture he was drawing. This is the kind of God that he is. He's not a God who just judges us but he's a God who wants to change us, who wants to transform us. That's why grace is so important to understand that God moves us from guilt to innocence, but he also moves us from fear to power, and he also moves us from shame to honor. And that's what the gospel's all about. It's not just one of those. Now, if you think back, the children of Israel, they understood the fear-power relation back in Egypt, and they understood honor and shame. They lived in a shame-based culture. They had a struggle with understanding guilt and innocence. So that's why when God gives the law, you get into Leviticus and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, all the way through, and God is saying over and over again, if a man sleeps with his daughter, this is sin. If this and this happens, this is sin, and so forth. He goes all the way through, and he's pointing out this is sin because the Bible is speaking to their culture. And it's telling them there is right and wrong. There is guilt and innocence. And there are things that are outside of what God wants. And so he's teaching everyone. So he teaches people from shame-based cultures. He teaches people from guilt-based cultures. And all of this book speaks to people. And this book is useful in any culture you go to. And you go to a shame-based culture, and as they take it, they will find verses that speak volumes to them. But they may not be so loud to us. But they they speak to them. I remember sitting under an African pastor and his whole sermon was about Jacob and Esau. And he said Jacob was wanting to go home and as he's going home to meet Esau, he is afraid. And his whole thing was on fear. And so what does he do? He sends gifts. He sends sheep. He sends camels. He sends servants. He sends more gifts and more gifts. And finally, he even sends his wife and his kids And he's he's so afraid that he sacrifices all of those. And finally, when he gets there, he has to deal with the fear and find out that it's forgiven and forgiveness overcomes fear. But it affected everything. He was willing to sacrifice everything in his life because of the fear that he faced. I don't hear those kinds of sermons in North America because we don't live in a fear-based, at least up in my part of the country, we don't address those things in people's lives. That's a typical sermon from a good African preacher who is preaching the gospel from his perspective of fear and power. And God gives us the power to overcome the fear that's in our lives. So the Bible is full of all of these things. Now what's interesting is that wherever you go in whatever culture you're in, there's this mixing of worldviews. And worldviews mix. They're not always clear-cut. You can't just say, well, this culture is only this. So it's a matter of trying to figure out where people are coming from. I was in a church once preaching on this, and at the end of the service, a man came up to me, a young young man, and uh, he had tears running down his face. And he said to me, today is the first time I understood how I got saved. He said, I always thought I was strange. He said, let me tell you a bit about me. He said, as I grew up, he said, my father was an alcoholic. Every night... When I went to bed, I knew I would wake up in the middle of the night with him beating me. He would come home and beat us in our sleep. He would beat my mother and beat the kids. He said, I grew up afraid. Fear was a big part of my life. And so when I came to Christ, a big part of it was dealing with my fear and finding that Christ gave me the power to overcome my fear. He said, I always thought I was weird because I didn't feel guilty as a sinner. And I said, I understood all that, that I was guilty and I accepted it. The big thing for me was the fear power paradigm and he was a North American. But that was what uh, spoke to him. Well, maybe the very same time, very same town, 
you may have an honor-conscious family. And this is a family that says we are an important family. And, we're, and so they're teaching this whole honor and shame thing. And there's a strong mix of that with their kids. So, so you may have these two different cultures in the same town. Well, at the very same time, maybe in those very same families, you may have a different situation in the school. Young people growing up, maybe they don't feel the right and wrongness of culture. That culture says should be there or their worldview should be there. And maybe they express things differently. And as I came back to North America and my kids entered the school system, they came home and said, Dad, it's, it's the same as over there. It's all honor and shame. I said, what? And they said, oh, yeah. They said, a kid who's honorable, he's cool. And a kid who's shameful, he's the geek or the nerd or the, and they have all kinds of the loser or whatever else. And all the kids think in these terms. And so everybody wants to be cool. They don't care about right and wrong. They, all they care about is being cool rather than being one of these other things. A couple of years ago in uh, Toronto, in, uh, in Canada, one girl killed another girl in school in a fight. And when they took her into court, they asked her, why did you do it? And she said, because the other girl had on these fancy name brand shoes and she shouldn't have had them on. She wasn't cool. She killed another girl over an honor and shame issue. And as I read the story, I thought, what happened to right and wrong? This girl doesn't know anything about right and wrong. In fact, so many young girls today get in, in trouble with um, you know, sexual things or whatever. They're not thinking right or wrong. Maybe it's in the back of their mind. But many times they're thinking, I want to be accepted. I want to be part of this. I want this person to love me. I want to be, I want to be cool. I want to be part of the group and whatever the group is doing and so forth. So this invades and there's this mixing of worldviews. Maybe you have someone who lives by their horoscope. I read about a movie star who refused to get out of the bathtub because her horoscope said she was going to have a bad day and she read it while she's in the bathtub and she was terrified of getting out of the bathtub because it was going to be a bad day. And they had to coax her and, and, and you know, get her out and get her to participate. Well, that's fear-based culture. And that's that, that fear-based thing happening in her life. And youth gangs, if you go to school and sometimes kids are going around bullying and dominating others, and there's that fear-power paradigm. So it invades our life in different ways. What really challenges me is that the church in North America, the church that I listen to, the older people, the preachers that I hear, they interpret everything from the Bible in a guilt-innocence context. And they're going through and they, they, they take that, that line, that thread, and it's there and it's good and it speaks to our culture and, and they're, they're preaching from it. But young people are living more and more in an honor and shame-based society in a fear-power paradigm and they're not, our churches are not speaking to our young people. And we're getting churches and young people are going, I don't get what I need. I don't understand the message. And this is a case where they may go and accept the messenger. The preacher's the preacher. They're Christian kids. They're sitting there. But they're not understanding the message because it's not speaking to their worldview the way it should. And so we have a challenge in North America to be able to go through this Bible and find out how do we speak to people who are dealing with honor and shame or fear and power issues in their life. That's the mixing of worldviews. I found this in North American Indians, natives. Um, up in Canada, we call them First Nations. And uh, I've been up, and I've had a chance to minister to some, on some of the reserves, talk to some of the First Nations people, talk to some of the missionaries who are working there. And I found it varies from tribe to tribe. And some of the tribes said that, well, we've had a lot of contact with the Anglican or the... Uh, uh, whatever, uh, the, the, the Anglican Church, what we call it in Canada, the Church of England, or with the Catholic Church. And so they've been exposed to guilt and innocence. But there are many others who still have this fear power. And so they have the sweat lodge and all the things that's uh, involved with the sweat lodge and going there and, and the whole fear power paradigm that comes out there. They also express honor and shame in the powwow. And I remember challenging some of these missionaries who were working with, now this is not with Muslims, they're working with North American native people. I said, okay, the powwow, tell me about the powwow. And so the, the native guy said, oh, powwows are wonderful times. Yeah, there's a lot of drinking, we don't like that. But what happens in a powwow is that um, somebody will get up and say, you know, last winter 
I was sick and I was cold and I didn't have any more firewood and my neighbor brought me firewood over and got, you know, got my house warm and I want a song or a dance to be done for my neighbor to honor my neighbor for what they did. And then they'll do the powwow and they'll do the, the dancing and everything else and then when they're done, somebody else will stand up and say, oh, I want to honor so-and-so. And I said, have you done that in the Christian service? Do you have a Christian powwow where you can honor one another or honor the Lord for prayers that were answered or whatever and do it like a, an Indian powwow? That we never thought of that. But this is something that speaks to them in their culture. We mentioned before the mixing of cultures in a Russian uh, worldview, the mixing of, but there is a mixing there of, of the fear power paradigm of the, uh, the Russian government system, whatever it's been, but also, if you go to a Greek Orthodox church, you'll find the shame-honor mix is also there in their culture. And when you go into a Greek Orthodox church, most of these churches, they have no benches. You stand during the entire service. And you're surrounded by pictures on the wall. These are icons. And the, and the priest will remind you that you are standing in the presence of, these pictures remind us we're standing in the presence of all these great honorable people and we must live our lives honorably so that we can get to heaven and so forth. But there's a real sense of shame and honor in a Greek Orthodox culture. So all over the world there are these cultures that have mixes in them. And when we go into a particular culture, we have to be aware that we may be speaking to someone whose mix may be slightly different from someone else. So this means we need to get to know the person and begin to recognize what is it that they're struggling with. Am I dealing with an Arab who's struggling with honor and shame issues? Uh, and those are the important things in his life. Am I dealing with an Arab who's dealing with fear power issues? And maybe is afraid of something demonic or a curse or something else in their life. Or am I dealing with uh, someone who has got other issues in their lives? And so we need to be aware of, of who we are dealing with. What is the worldview so that we can begin to tailor our worldview, uh, our message, so it speaks into their worldview. The idea is we need to be able to be ministers of the gospel who can take this Bible and adequately open it up and share the gospel, whether someone's from a guilt-based or a fear-based, or a shame-based gospel, we should be able to take the Bible and share meaningful verses with them. And as we share a story or a verse, it will speak into their culture and their worldview in a way that they understand. If I go to the Arab world and I begin to talk to them about guilt, the problem is they don't have a good word for guilt in Arabic. They don't have a good concept of it. A Muslim is only guilty of maybe five things, eating pork, drinking wine, eating something that's not sacrificed in, in the proper way, equating something equal with God and so forth. And so the Muslim will say, I'm not guilty because the Quran only forbids me to do these things. Everything else in life is put on a scale of honor and shame. But what is forbidden is only a couple of things. So if you go on and say, we are all guilty before God, he goes, you may be because you eat pork. You drink wine. You equate Jesus equal with God. You need that message. I don't need it because I'm not guilty. And so they reject us as messengers and they reject our message because we failed to understand their worldview and to understand what are the issues and what does the Bible say to their worldview and to their religion that speaks to them loud and clear. We need more people like Muhammad who are reading through the Bible and come to us and say, I don't get 1 Samuel chapter 2 because that clues us in this is an important verse because he doesn't understand it so we need to work through this is speaking to him loud and clear and these are the kind of verses we need to share. So we're going to continue on in the future lessons understanding more of the shame-based culture and how to share the gospel with people from shame-based cultures especially Muslims. <laughs>